Disc 2. They heard shouting as they came near the caravans and saw one man pointing them out to another. It was Sniffer's father. Look, that's the fellow who woke us up in the stable last night, said Julian to Dick. Sniffer's father. Oh, what a nasty bit of work he is. Why doesn't he get a haircut? Good morning, called Dick as they rode up to the caravans on their horses. Nice day. There was no answer. The travellers driving their caravans and those walking alongside looked sourly at the four riders. Where are you going? asked Henry. To the coast? It's nothing to do with you, said one of the travellers, an old man with curly grey hair. Surly folk, aren't they? said Dick to Julian. I suppose they think we're spying on them or something. I wonder how they manage about food on this moor. No shops or anything. I suppose they take it all with them. I'll ask them, said Henry, not at all put off by the surly looks. She rode right up to Sniffer's father. How do you manage about food and water? she asked. We've got food there, said Sniffer's father, jerking his head back towards one of the caravans. As for water, we know where the springs are. Are you camping on the moor for a long time? asked Henry thinking that a traveller's life might be a fine one for a time. Fancy living out here on this lovely moor with gorse blazing gold all around and primroses by the thousand in the sheltered corners. That's nothing to do with you, shouted the old man with curly grey hair. Clear off. Leave us alone. Come on, Henry, said Julian, swinging round to go off. They don't like us asking them questions. They think it's prying, not interest. Maybe they have lots of things to hide and don't want us poking around. One or two chickens from a farm, a duck or so from the pond. They live from hand to mouth, these folk. Some bright-eyed children peered from the vans as they went by. One or two were running outside, but they sheared off like frightened rabbits when Henry cantered towards them. Oh, well, they simply don't want to be friendly, she said and went to join the other three. What a strange life they lead, in their houses on wheels. Never staying anywhere for long, always on the move. <laughs> Get up there, Sultan. Go after the others. Her horse obediently followed the other three, taking care not to step into any rabbit holes. What fun it was to be out here in the sunshine, jogging up and down on the horse's back without a care in the world. Henry was very happy. The other three were enjoying their day, but they were not quite so happy. They kept wondering about George. They missed Timmy, too. He should be trotting beside them, enjoying the day as well. They lost sight of the caravans after a time. Julian kept track of the way they went, half afraid of being lost. He had a compass with him and checked their direction continually. It would never do to have to spend a night out here, he said. Nobody would ever find us. They had a magnificent lunch about half-past twelve. Really, Mrs Johnson had surpassed herself. Egg and sardine sandwiches, tomato and lettuce, ham, there seemed no end to them. Great slices of cherry cake were added too, and a large, juicy pear each. Mmm, I like this kind of cherry cake, said Dick, looking at his enormous slice. 
The cherries have all gone to the bottom. They make a very nice last mouthful. Any drinks? said Henry, and was handed a bottle of ginger beer. She drank it thirstily. Why does ginger beer taste so nice on a picnic? she said. Much nicer than drinking it sitting down in a shop, even if it's got ice in it. There's a spring or something nearby, said Julian. I can hear it bubbling. They all listened. Yes, there was a little bubbling, tinkling noise. Anne got up to trace it. She found it in a few minutes and called the others. There was a round pool, cool and blue, lying two or three feet down, and into it, from one side, fell a crystal-clear spring of water, tinkling as it fell. One of the springs that the travellers use when they come to this deserted moor, I expect, said Julian. He cupped his hands under the falling water and got his palms full. He carried the water to his mouth and sipped it. Delicious! Cool as an icebox, he said. Taste it, Anne. They rode a little farther, but the moors seemed the same everywhere. Heather, wiry grass, gorse, a clear spring falling into a pool or tiny stream here and there, and a few trees, mostly silver birch. Larks sang all the time, soaring high in the air, almost too far up to see. Their song falls down like raindrops, said Anne, holding out her hands as if to catch them. Henry laughed. She liked this family and was very glad they had asked her to come out with them. She thought George was silly to have stayed at the stables. I think we ought to go home, said Julian at last, looking at his watch. We're a good way away. Let me see now. We want to make more or less for the setting sun. Come on. He led the way, his horse picking its own path over the heather. The others followed. Dick stopped after a while. Are you sure we're quite right, Jew? I don't somehow feel that we are. The moor is different here, rather sandy and not so much gorse. Julian stopped his horse and looked round and about. Yes, it does look a bit different, he said. But yet we seem to be going in the right direction. Let's go a bit more to the west. Oh, if only there was something on the horizon to guide us. But this moor hasn't a thing that stands out anywhere. They went on again, and then Henry gave an exclamation. I say, what's this? Do come here. The two boys and Anne swerved over to Henry. She was now off her horse and was bending over, scraping away at the heather. Look, it seems like rails or something, said Henry. Very old and rusty. But they can't be, surely. Everyone was now down on their knees, scraping sand and heather away. Julian sat back and considered. Yes, it's rails. Old ones, as you say. But what in the world were rails laid down here for? I can't think, said Henry. I only caught sight of them by chance. They're so overgrown. I couldn't believe my eyes. They must lead from somewhere to somewhere, said Dick. Perhaps there was a quarry or something on the moor and they ran little engines with trucks there to fetch the sand and take it back to town to sell. That's about it said Julian. It's very sandy here, as we noticed. 
good find sand. Maybe there is a quarry on the moor. Well, that way, behind us, goes right out on the moor, so this way must lead back to some town or village. Probably Milling Green or somewhere like that. Yes, you're right, said Dick. In which case, if we follow the lines along, we'll get back to civilization sooner or later. Well, seeing that we seem to be more or less lost, that would be quite a good idea, said Henry. She mounted her horse again and rode along the lines. They're fairly easy to see, she called. If you ride between them, that is, because they go so straight. The lines ran steadily over the moor, sometimes very overgrown, and in about half an hour's time, Henry gave a cry and pointed forward. Houses! I thought we'd soon come to some place. It is milling green, said Julian, as the rails came to a sudden end, and they rode out into a small cart road. Well, we haven't got far to go now to get to the stables, said Henry, pleased. I say, wouldn't it be fun to follow those lines all across the moor and see where they really lead to? Yes, we might do that one day said Julian. Gosh, it's getting late. I wonder how old George has been getting on today. They walked quickly along to the stables, thinking of George. Would she have retired to bed? Would she still be cross, or worse still, hurt and grieved? It was anybody's guess. Chapter 7 George, Sniffer and Liz George had had quite an interesting day. First, she had gone down to help Captain Johnson do Clip's leg again and bandage it up. The little skewbald stood very patiently, and George felt a sudden liking for the ugly little creature. Thanks, George, said Captain Johnson, who, to her relief, had said nothing about her not having gone riding with the others. Now, would you like to come and put jumps up for the youngsters? They're longing to do some more jumping. George found that it was quite amusing to teach the younger ones how to jump. They were so very, very proud of themselves when they went over even a foot-high jump on their little ponies. After that, Sniffer arrived, accompanied by a peculiar little mongrel called Liz. Liz was a bit of a spaniel, a bit of a poodle, and odd bits of something else and looked rather like a small, walking hearthrug of black, curly fur. Timmy was amazed to see this walking mat, and sat and watched Liz sniffing here and there for some time, before he came to the conclusion that it really was some kind of dog. He gave a sharp little bark to see what this comical creature would do when she heard it. Liz took no notice at all. She had unearthed a small bone, which smelt extremely interesting. Timmy considered that all bones within the radius of at least a mile belonged to him, and him alone. So he ran over to Liz at once, and gave a small warning growl. Liz immediately dropped the bone humbly at his feet, and then sat up on her hind legs and begged. Timmy eyed her in astonishment. Then... Liz stood up on her hind legs and walked daintily all round Timmy and back again. Timmy was astounded. 
He had never seen a dog do that before. Could this hearthrug affair be a dog after all? Liz saw that Timmy was really impressed and went on with yet another trick she had learned during the time she had been with the circus. She turned head over heels, yapping all the time. Timmy retreated a few steps into the bushes. This was going too far. What was this animal doing? Trying to stand on its head? Liz went on, turning head over heels very rapidly, and ended up almost on Timmy's front paws. He had now backed into the bush as far as he could. Liz remained on her back, paws in the air, tongue hanging out, panting. She gave a very small, beseeching whine. Timmy bent his head down and sniffed at her paws. Behind him, his tail began to move a little. Yes, it had a wag in it. He sniffed again. Liz leapt onto her four feet and pranced all round Timmy, yapping as if to say, Come on and play! Do come! And then, suddenly, Timmy fell upon the absurd little creature and pretended to worry it. Liz gave a delighted volley of yaps and rolled over and over. They had a marvellous game, and when it was all over, Timmy sank down, panting for breath, in a sunny corner of the yard, and Liz settled herself between his front paws as if she had known him all her life. When George came out of the stable with Sniffer, she could hardly believe her eyes. What's that Timmy's got between his paws, she said. It's surely not a dog. <gasps> it's Liz, said Sniffer. She can get round any dog there is, George. Liz, you're a monkey, aren't you? <gasps> Walk then. Walk. Liz left Timmy and ran over to Sniffer, walking daintily on her hind legs. George laughed. What a funny little creature, like a bit cut out of a furry hearth rug. <sniffs> She's clever, said Sniffer, and patted Liz. Well, George, when can I have clipped, you think? <sniffs> My father's gone off with the other caravans, and he's left me with ours. So <sniffs> it doesn't matter whether it's today or tomorrow, or even the next day. Well, it won't be today, that's certain, said George. It might perhaps be tomorrow. Oh, haven't you got a hanky sniffer? I never in my life heard anyone sniff as often as you do. Sniffer rubbed his sleeve across his nose. I've never had an hanky, he said, but I've got my sleeve. I think you're quite disgusting, said George. I'm going to give you one of my own hankies, and you're to use it. You're not to keep sniffing like that. <sniffs> Didn't know I did said Sniffer, half sulkily. What does it matter anyway? But George had gone indoors and up the stairs. She chose a large hanky in red and white stripes. That would do nicely for Sniffer. She took it down to him. He looked at it in surprise. That's a scarf for my neck, he said. No, it isn't. It's a hanky for your nose, said George. Haven't you a pocket to put it in? That's right. Now, use it instead of sniffing, for goodness sake. Where are the others? asked Sniffer, putting the hanky carefully into his pocket, almost as if it were made of glass. Gone riding, said George shortly. 
They said they would come see my caravan, said Sniffer. They said so. Well, they won't be able to today, said George. They'll be back too late, I expect. I'll come and see it, though. There's nobody in it, is there? George was not keen on meeting Sniffer's father or any other of his relations. He shook his head. No, it's empty. My father's gone, I told you. And my aunt and my grandma, too. What do you do on the moor? asked George, as she followed Sniffer across the field and up the hill to where the caravans had stood. Now only one was left, Sniffer's. Play around, said Sniffer, and gave an enormous sniff. George gave him a shove in the back. Sniffer, what did I give you the hanky for? Don't do that, it gets on my nerves. Sniffer used his sleeve at once, but fortunately George didn't notice. She had now come to the caravan and was staring at it. She thought of Sniffer's answer to her question a minute or two back. You said you just played around on the moor. But what does your father do, and your uncle and grandad and all the rest of the men? There's nothing to do there at all, as far as I can see, and no farmhouse to beg eggs or milk or anything from. Sniffer shut up like a clam. He was just about to sniff and thought better of it. He stared at George, his mouth set in an obstinate line. George looked at him impatiently. Captain Johnson said you and your caravans went there every three months, she said. What for? There must be some reason. Well, said Sniffer, looking away from her, we make pegs and baskets and... I know that. All travellers make things to sell, said George. But you don't need to go into the middle of a deserted moor to make them. You can do them just as well in a village or sitting in a field near a farmhouse. Why go to such a lonely place as the moor? Sniffer said nothing, but bent over an odd little arrangement of sticks set on the path beside his caravan. George saw them and bent over them too, her question forgotten. Oh, is that a patron, a traveller message? What does it mean? There were two sticks one long and one short, neatly arranged in the shape of a cross. A little farther up on the path were a few single straight sticks, all pointing in the same direction. Yes, yeah, said Sniffer, very glad to have the subject changed. It's our way of telling things to those who may come after us. Uh, see the sticks in the shape of the cross? That's the patron that says we've been along this way and that we're going in the direction that the long stick points. Oh, I see, said George. How simple. But what about these four straight sticks, all pointing the same way too? What do they mean? They mean that the travellers went in caravans, said Sniffer, giving a sudden sniff. See? Four sticks, four caravans, going that way. I see, said George making up her mind that she herself would evolve quite a few patrons for use at school when they went for walks. Are there any more patrons, Sniffer? Plenty, said the boy. Look, when I leave here, I shall put a patron like this. He picked a large leaf from a nearby tree and then a small one. 
he placed them side by side and weighted them down with small stones. What in the world does that mean? said George. Well, it's a patron, a message, to say that me and my little dog have gone in the caravan too, said Sniffer, picking up the leaves. Suppose my father came back to find me and he saw those leaves there, he'd know I'd gone on with my dog. It's simple. Big leaf for me, little leaf for my dog. Yes, I like it, said George, pleased. Now, let's look at the caravan. It was an old-fashioned kind of caravan, not very big and with huge wheels. The door and the steps down were in front. The shafts rested on the ground, waiting for Clip to come back. The caravan was black, with red designs on it here and there. George went up the steps. I've been inside a few caravans, she said, but never one quite like this. She peeped in curiously. It certainly wasn't very clean, but it wasn't as dirty as she expected either. It's not smelly, is it? said Sniffer quite anxiously. I tidied it up today, seeing as how I thought you were all visiting me. That's our bed at the back. We all sleep on it. George stared at the big bunk-like bed stretched at the end of the caravan, covered with a bright quilt. She imagined the whole family sleeping there, close together. Well, at least they would be warm in the winter. Don't you get hot in the summer, sleeping in this small caravan? asked George. Oh, no. Only my grandma sleeps in here then, said Sniffer, swallowing a sniff in a hurry before George could hear it. Me and the others sleep under the caravan. Then, if it rains, it doesn't matter. Well, thanks for showing me so many things, said George, looking round at the cupboards, the little locker seats and the over-big chest of drawers. How you all get in here is a miracle. She didn't go in. Even though Sniffer had tidied up, there was still a distinctly peculiar smell hanging about. Come and see us tomorrow, Sniffer she said, going down the steps. Clip may be all right by then. And Sniffer, don't you forget you've got a hanky now. I won't forget, said Sniffer proudly. I'll keep it as clean as can be, George. Chapter 8 Sniffer Makes a Promise George was feeling very lonely by the time the evening came. How had the others got on without her? Had they missed her at all? Perhaps they hadn't even thought of her. Anyway, they didn't have you, Timmy, said George. You wouldn't go off and leave me, would you? Timmy pressed against her, glad to see that she was happier again. He wondered where the others were and where they had gone to all day. There was suddenly a clattering of hooves in the stable yard, and George flew to the door. Yes! They were back. How should she behave? She felt cross and relieved and rather humble and glad all at once. She stood there, not knowing whether to frown or to smile. The others made up her mind for her. Hello, George, shouted Dick. We did miss you. How's your head? called Anne. I hope it's better. Hello, called Henry. You ought to have come. We've had a super day. Come and help us stable the horses, George, shouted Julian. 
Tell us what you've been doing. Timmy had sped over to them, barking in delight. George found her legs running towards them too, a welcoming smile on her face. Hello, she called. Let me help. Did you really miss me? I missed you too. The boys were very relieved to see that George was herself again. Nothing more was said about her headache. She busied herself unsaddling the horses and listening to their story of the day. Then she told them about Sniffer and his patrons and how she had given him a brand new handkerchief. But I'm sure he thinks he's got to keep it spotlessly clean, she said. He never used it once when I was with him. There's the supper bell. We'll only just be in time. Are you hungry? You bet we are, said Dick. Though after Mrs Johnson's sandwiches, I never thought I'd be able to eat any supper at all. How's Clip? Never mind now. I'll tell you everything at supper, said George. Do you want any help, Henry? Henry was surprised to hear George call her Henry instead of Henrietta. No, thanks. Uh, George, she said, I can manage. It was a very jolly supper time that evening. The youngsters were set at a table by themselves, so the older ones talked to their heart's content. Captain Johnson was very interested to hear about the old railway they had found. I never knew there was anything like that on the moors, he said, though of course we've only been here about fifteen years, so we don't know a great deal of the local history. Do you want to go and ask old Ben the blacksmith about that? He's lived here all his life, and our long life it is, for he's over eighty. Well, we've got to take some of the horses to be shot tomorrow, haven't we? said Henry eagerly. We could ask him then. Why? He might even have helped to make the rails. We saw the caravans, George, when we had got pretty far out on the moor, said Julian. Goodness knows where they were heading for. Towards the coast, I should think. What's the coast like beyond the moor, Captain Johnson? Wild, said the captain. Great unclimbable cliffs and reefs or rocks stretching out to the sea. Only the birds live there. There's no bathing, no boating, no beach. Well, it beats me where those caravans are going, said Dick. It's a mystery. They go every three months, don't they? About that, said Captain Johnson. I've no idea what the attraction of the moor is for the travellers. It just beats me. Usually they won't go anywhere. There aren't a few farms or at least a small village where they could sell their goods. I'd like to go after them and see where they are and what they're doing, said Julian, eating his third hard-boiled egg. All right, let's, said George. But how? We don't know where they've gone, said Henry. Well, Sniffer's going to join them tomorrow, or as soon as Clip is all right for walking, said George. And he's got to follow the patrons left on the way by the others. He says that he looks at the places where fires have been made on the way, and beside them somewhere he will see the patrons, the sticks that point in the direction he must follow. He's sure to destroy them, said Dick. We couldn't follow them. We'll ask him to leave his own patrons, said George. I think he will. He's not a bad little boy, really. I could ask him to leave plenty of patrons, so that we could easily find the way. Well, it might be fun to see if we could read the right road to go, just as easily as the travellers do, said Julian. 
we could make it a day's ride. It would be interesting. Henry gave a most enormous yawn, and that made Anne yawn too, though hers was a very polite one. Henry, said Mrs Johnson. Sorry, said Henry. It just came almost like a sneeze does. I don't know why, but I feel almost asleep. Go to bed then, said Mrs Johnson. You've had such a day of air and sunshine. You all look very brown, too. The April sun has been as hot as July today. The five of them, and Timmy, went out for a last look at the horses and to do one or two small jobs. Henry yawned again, and that set everyone else off, even George. Me for the straw, said Julian with a laugh. Oh, the thought of that warm, comfy straw bed is too good for words. You girls are welcome to the beds. I hope Sniffer's pa doesn't come in the middle of the night again, said Dick. I shall tie up the latch, said Julian. Well, let's go and say good night to Mrs Johnson. It wasn't long before the three girls were in bed and the two boys cuddled down in the straw of the stable. Clip was there still, but he no longer fidgeted. He lay down quietly and did not once move his bad leg. It was getting much better. He would certainly be able to go after the others the next day. Julian and Dick fell asleep at once. No one came creeping in at the stable door that night. Nothing disturbed them until the morning, when a cock got into the stable through a window, sat on a rafter just above them, and crowed loudly enough to wake both boys with a jump. What's that? said Dick. That awful screeching in my ear. Was it you, Jew? The cock crowed again, and the boys laughed. Blow him, said Julian, settling down again. I could do with another couple of hours sleep. That morning, Sniffer came slipping in at the gate again. He never came boldly in, he slid through the hedge, or crept in at the gate, or appeared round a corner. He saw George and went over to her. George, he called. Is Clip better? Yes, called back George. Captain Johnson says you can take him today. But wait a bit, Sniffer. I want to ask you something before you go. Sniffer was pleased. He liked this girl who had presented him with such a magnificent handkerchief. He took it carefully out of his pocket, hoping to please her. See, he said, how clean it is. I have kept it very carefully. He sniffed loudly. Oh, you're an idiot, said George, exasperated. I gave it to you to use, not to keep clean in your pocket. It's to stop your sniffing. Honestly, you're a bit of a mutt, Sniffer. I shall take that hanky away if you don't use it. Sniffer looked alarmed. He shook it out carefully and then lightly touched his nose with it. He then folded it up conscientiously in the right creases and put it back into his pocket again. Now, no sniffing, commanded George, trying not to laugh. Listen, Sniffer, you know those patrons you showed me yesterday? Yes, George, said Sniffer. Well... Will the other travellers who have gone in front leave you patrons to follow so that you will know the way, said George. Sniffer nodded. Yes, yeah, 
but not many, because I've been that way twice before. They will only leave them in places where I might go wrong. I see, said George. Now, Sniffer, we want to have a sort of game. We want to see which of us can follow Patrins, and we want you to lay Patrins for us, quite often, on your way to your family today. Will you? Oh, yes, I will, said Sniffer, quite proud to have a favour asked of him. I will lay the ones I showed you. The cross, the long sticks and the big and little leaf. Yes, do, said George. That will mean that you have passed in a certain direction and you are a boy and a dog. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, said Sniffer, nodding his head. You have remembered. Right. And we're going to have a kind of game, trying to pretend we are travellers following others who have passed, said George. You must not show yourselves when you come up to our caravans, said Sniffer, looking suddenly alarmed. I shall get into trouble for laying patrons for you. All right, we'll be careful, said George. Now, let's go and get Clip. They fetched the patient little skewbald, who came out gladly. He no longer limped, and his rest seemed to have done him good. He went off at a good pace with Sniffer. The last George heard of them was a very loud sniff indeed. Sniffer, she shouted warningly. He put his hand in his pocket and pulled out the hanky. He waved it gaily in the air, a sudden grin lighting up his face. George went to find the others. Sniffer has taken clip, she said. What about going down to the blacksmith and taking those horses that want shoeing? Good idea, said Julian. We can ask him all about Mystery Moor then and the strange little railway line or whatever it is. Come on. They took the horses that needed shoeing. There were six of them, so they each rode one, and Julian led the sixth. Timmy ran happily along beside them. He loved the horses, and they regarded him as a real friend, bending their long noses down to sniff at him whenever he came near. They went slowly down the long lane to the blacksmith's. There it is, said George, a proper old smithy with a lovely fire. And there's the smith. Old Ben was a mighty figure of a man, even though he was over eighty. He didn't shoe many horses now, but sat in the sun, watching all that was going on. He had a great mane of white hair, and eyes that were as black as the coal he had so many times heated to a fiery flame. Good morning, young masters and miss, he said, and Julian grinned. That would please George and Henry. We've got some questions to ask you, said George, dismounting. Ask away, said the old man. If it's about this place, there's nothing much old Ben can't tell you. Give Jim your horses. Now, ask away. Chapter 9. The Blacksmith Tells a Tale Well, began Julian, we went riding on Mystery Moor yesterday. And for one thing, we'd like to know if there is any reason for the curious name. Was there ever a mystery on that moor? Oh, there were plenty of mysteries away there, said old Ben. People lost and never come back again. Noises that no one could find the reason of. 
What kind of noises? said Anne curiously. Ah, now, when I was a boy, I spent nights up on that moor, said old Ben solemnly. And the noises that went on there, screeches and howls and the like, and moans and the sweep of big wings. Well, all that might have been owls and foxes and things like that, said Dick. I've heard a barn owl give a screech just over my head, which made me nearly jump out of my skin. If I hadn't known it was an owl, I'd have run for miles. Ben grinned, and his face ran into a score of creases and wrinkles. Why is it called Mystery Moor? persisted Julian. Is it a very old name? When my granddad was a boy, it was called Misty Moor, said the old blacksmith, remembering. See? Misty, not mystery. And that was because of the sea fogs that came stealing in from the coast and lay heavy on the moor, so that no man could see his hand in front of his face. <laughs> yes, I've been lost in one of those mists, and right scared I was too. It swirled round me like a live thing and touched me all over with its cold, damp fingers. Oh, how horrid, said Anne with a shiver. What did you do? Well, first I ran for my life, said Ben, getting out his pipe and looking into the empty bowl. I ran over heather and into gorse. I fell a dozen times, and all the time the mist was feeling me with its damp fingers, trying to get me. That's what the old folk used to say of that mist. It was always trying to get you. Still, it was only a mist, said George, feeling that the old man was exaggerating. Does it still come over the moor? Oh, aye, said Ben, ramming some tobacco into his pipe. Autumn's the time, but it comes suddenly at any moment of the year. I've known it come at the end of a fine summer's day, creeping in stealthily. And my, if you don't happen to see it soon enough, it gets you. What do you mean, it gets you, said George. Well, it may last for days, said old Ben. And if you're lost on the moors, you're really lost, and you never come back. <laughs> Smile if you like, young man, but I know. He went off into memories of long ago, looking down at his pipe. Let's see now. There was old Mrs. Banks, who went bilberry picking with her basket on a summer's afternoon, and no one ever heard of her again after the mist came down. And there was young Victor, who played truant, and went off to the moor, and the mist got him too. I can see we'd better watch out for the mist if we go riding there, said Dick. This is the first I've heard of it. Oh, yes, you keep your eyes skinned, said old Ben. Look away to the coastside and watch there. That's where it comes from. But there aren't many mists nowadays, though I don't know why. No, now I think of it. There hasn't been a mist, not a proper wicked one, for nearly three years. What I'd like to know is why the name changed to Mystery Moor, said Henry. I can understand it's being called Misty Moor, but now everyone calls it Mystery, not Misty. Well, now, that must have been about 70 years ago when I was a boy, said Ben, 
lighting his pipe and puffing hard. He was enjoying himself. He didn't often get such an interested audience as this, five of them, including a dog who sat and listened too. That was when the Bartle family built the little railway over the moor, he began, and stopped at the exclamations of his five listeners. Ah, we wanted to know about that. Oh, you know about the railway then? Do go on. The blacksmith seemed to get some trouble with his pipe and pulled at it for an exasperatingly long time. George wished she was a horse and could stamp her foot impatiently. Well, the Bartle family was a big one, said Ben at last. All boys, but for one ailing little girl. Big, strong fellows they were. I remember them well. I was scared of them. They were so free with their fists. Well, one of them, Dan, found a mighty good stretch of sand out there on the moor. Oh, yes, we thought there might have been a sand quarry, said Anne. Ben frowned at the interruption. And as there were nine or ten good strong Bartles, they reckoned to make a fine do of it, said Ben. They got wagons, and they went to and from the quarry they dug, and they sold their sand for miles around. Good sharp sand it was. We saw some, said Henry. But what about the rails? Don't hurry him, said Dick with a frown. They made a great deal of money, said Ben, remembering. And they set to work and built a little railway to carry an engine and trucks to the quarry and back to save labour. <laughs> my, my, that was a nine days wonder, that railway. Us youngsters used to follow the little engine, puffing along, and we all longed to drive it, but we never did. Those Bartles kept a big stick, each one of them, and they whipped the hide off any boy that got too near them. Fierce they were, and quarrelsome. Why did the railway fall into ruin? asked Julian. The rails are all overgrown with heather and grass. You can hardly see them. Well... Now we come to the mystery you keep on about, said Ben, taking an extra big puff at his pipe. Those Bartles fell foul of the travellers up on the moor. Oh, were there travellers on the moor then, said Dick. There are some now. Oh, I, there's always been travellers on the moor, long as I can remember, said the blacksmith. Well, it's said those travellers quarrelled with the Bartles. It wasn't hard to do that. Most people did. And the travellers pulled up bits of the line here and there, and the little engine toppled over and pulled the trucks with it. The children could quite well imagine the little engine puffing along, coming to the damaged rails and falling over. What a to-do there must have been up on the moor then. The Bartles weren't ones to put up with a thing like that, said Ben. So they set about to drive all the travellers off the moor, and they swore that if so much as one caravan went there, they'd set fire to it and chase the travellers over to the coast and into the sea. They must have been a fierce family, said Anne. You're right there, said Ben. All nine or ten of them were big, upstanding men with great shaggy eyebrows that almost hid their eyes and loud voices. Nobody dared to cross them. 
If they did, they'd have the whole family on their doorstep with sticks. They ruled this place, they did. And my, they were hated. Us children ran off as soon as we saw one coming round a corner. What about the travellers? Did the Bartles manage to drive them off the moor? Asked George impatiently. Now, let me go my own pace, young man, said Ben, pointing at her with his pipe. He thought she was a boy, of course. He did something to his pipe and made them all wait a little. Julian winked at the others. He liked this old fellow with his long, long memories. Now, you can't cross the travellers for long, said Ben at last. That's a fact, you can't. And one day, all the Bartles disappeared and never come back home. No, not one of them. All that was left of the family was the little lame Agnes, their sister. Everyone exclaimed in surprise, and old Ben looked round with satisfaction. Ah, he could tell a story, he could. But what happened? said Henry. Well, no one rightly knows, said Ben. It happened in a week when the mist came swirling over the moors and blotted everything out. Nobody went up there except the Bartles, and they were safe because all they had to do was to follow their railway lines there and back. They went up to the quarry each day the mist was there and worked the same as usual. Nothing stopped those Bartles from working. He paused and looked round at his listeners. He dropped his voice low, and all five of the children felt little shivers up their backs. One night, somebody in the village saw twenty or more travellers' caravans slinking through the village at dead of night, said Ben. Up on the moor they went in the thick mist. Maybe they followed the railway. Nobody knows. And the next morning, up to the quarry went the Bartles as usual, swallowed up in the mist. He paused again. And they never came back, he said. No, not one of them. Never heard of again. But what happened? said George. Search parties were sent out when the mist cleared, said old Ben. But not one of the Bartles did they find, alive or dead, not one. And they didn't find any travellers' caravans either. They'd all come, creeping back the next night, and pass through the village like shadows. I reckon the travellers set upon the Bartles in the mist that day, fought them, and defeated them, and took them and threw them over the cliffs into the roaring sea. How horrible, said Anne, feeling sick. Don't worry yourself, said the blacksmith. It all happened a long time ago, and there weren't many that mourned those Bartles, I can tell you. Funny thing was, their weakly little sister, Agnes, she lived to be a hale old woman of ninety-six, and only died a few years ago, and to think those strong, fierce brothers of hers went all together like that. It's a most interesting story, Ben, said Julian. So, Misty Moore became Mystery Moore then, did it? And nobody ever really found out what happened, so the mystery was never solved. Didn't anyone work the railway after that, or get the sand? No, not a soul, said Ben. 
We were all scared, you see, and young Agnes, she said the railway and the trucks and engine could rot for all she cared. I never dared to go near them after that. It was a long time before anyone but the travellers set foot on Misty Moor again. Now oh, it's all forgotten, the tale of the Bartles, but those travellers still remember, I've no doubt. They've got good memories, they have. Do you know why they come to Mystery Moor every so often? asked Dick. No, they come and they go, said Ben. They've their own funny ways. They don't belong anywhere, those folk. What they do on the moor is their own business, and I wouldn't want to poke my nose into it. I'd remember those old Bartles and keep away. A voice came from inside the smithy where Jim, the blacksmith's grandson, had been shooing the horses. Grandad, stop jabbering away there and let the children come and talk to me. I've shot nearly all the horses. Ben laughed. Go along, he said to the children. I know you'd like to be in there and see the sparks fly and the shoes made. I've wasted your time, I have, telling you long ago things. Go along into the smithy and just remember two things. Watch out for that mist and keep away from the travellers on the moor. Chapter 10 Sniffer's Patrons It was fun in the smithy, working the bellows, seeing the fire glow, and watching the red-hot shoes being shaped. Jim was quick and clever, and it was a pleasure to watch him. Have you been hearing Grandad's old stories? he said. It's all he's got to do now, sit there and remember. Though when he wants to, he can make a horseshoe as well as I can. Ah, there, that's the last one. Stand still, Sultan. That's right. The five children were soon on their way back again. It was a lovely morning, and the banks and ditches they passed were bright gold with thousands of celandines. All beautifully polished, said Anne, picking two or three for her buttonhole. It did look as if someone had polished the inside of each petal, for they gleamed like enamel. What a strange tale the old man told, said Julian. He told it well. Yes, he made me feel I don't want to go up on the moor again, said Anne. Don't be feeble, said George. It all happened ages ago. Jolly interesting, too. I wonder if the travellers who are there now know the story. Maybe their great-grandparents were the ones who sat on the Bartles that misty day. Well, Sniffer's father looked sly enough to carry out a plan like that, said Henry. What about us having a shot at following the way they went and seeing if we can make out the patterns that Sniffer told Georgie would leave? Good idea, said Julian. We'll go this afternoon. I say, what's the time? I should think it must be half-past lunchtime. They looked at their watches. Yes, we're late, but we always are when we get back from the blacksmith, said George. Never mind, I bet Mrs Johnson will have an extra special meal for us. She had. There was an enormous plate of stew for everyone, complete with carrots, onions, parsnips and turnips, and a date pudding to follow. <laughs> Good old Mrs Johnson. You three girls must wash up for me afterwards, she said. I've such a lot to do today. Why can't the boys help? said George at once. 
I'll do all the washing up, said Anne with a sudden grin. You four boys can go out to the stables. Dick gave her a good-natured shove. You know we'll help, even if we're not good at it. I'll dry. I hate those bits and pieces that float about in the washing bowl. Will it be all right if we go up on the moors this afternoon? asked George. Yes, quite all right. But if you want to take your tea, you'll have to pack it yourselves, said Mrs Johnson. I'm taking the small children out for a ride, and there's one on the leading rein still, as you know. They were ready to set off at three o'clock, their tea packed and everything. The horses were caught in the field and got ready too. They set off happily. Now we'll see if we're as clever as we think we are at reading Traveller Patrons, said George. Timmy, don't chase every rabbit you see or you'll be left behind. They cantered up onto the moor, passing the place where the caravans had stood. They knew the direction they had taken and here and there they saw wheel marks. It was fairly easy to follow their trail because five caravans made quite a path to follow. Here's where they camped first, said Julian, riding up to a blackened spot that showed where a fire had been lit. We ought to find a message left somewhere here. They searched for one. George found it. It's here, behind this tree, she called, out of the wind. They dismounted and came round George. On the ground was the patron, the shape of a cross, the long stick pointing forwards in the direction they were going. Other single sticks lay there, to show that a caravan had gone that way, and beside them were the large and the small leaf, weighted with tiny stones. What did those leaves show now? Oh yes, Sniffer and his dog, said Dick. Well, we're on the right way, though we'd know that anyhow by the fire. They mounted again and went on. It proved quite easy to find and follow the patrons. Only once did they find any difficulty, and that was when they came to a place marked by two trees, where there was no apparent sign in the heather of any caravan marks. The heather's so jolly thick here that it's taken the caravans as if it were a feather bed, springing up when they had gone and giving no sign of where they had passed, said Julian. He dismounted and had a good look round. No, there was no sign. We'll go on a little way, he said. We may come to a camping place, then we'll know. But they came to no old camping place, and stopped at last in bewilderment. We've lost the trail, said Dick. We're not such good travellers after all. Let's go back to those two trees, said George. We can still just see them. If it's so easy to lose the way there, there might be a patron, although there are no camp marks. After all, a patron is left to show the way, in case the ones following take the wrong route. So back they rode to the two trees, and there, sure enough, was Sniffer's patron. Henry found it set carefully between the trees so that nothing could disturb it. Here's the cross and the single sticks and the leaves, she said. But look, the long stick of the cross points to the east, and we went off to the north. No wonder we found no signs of the caravans. They set off to the east this time, across the thick springy heather, and almost at once found signs of the passing of caravans, twigs broken off the bushes, 
a wheel rut on a soft piece of ground. We're right now, said Julian, pleased. I was beginning to think it was all too easy for words, but it isn't. They rode for two hours and then decided to have tea. They sat down in a little glade of silver birches with an unexpected copse of pale primroses behind. Timmy had to make up his mind which to choose, a rabbit chase or titbits from the children's tea. He chose both, racing after an imaginary rabbit and then coming back for a sandwich. You know, it's a lot better for us when Mrs Johnson makes sandwiches of tomato or lettuce or something like that, said Henry. We do get them all then, but when we have meat or sardine or egg sandwiches, Timmy gets as much as we do. Well, surely you don't mind that, Henrietta, said George at once. You make Timmy sound very greedy. After all, you don't need to give him any of your sandwiches. Now, Georgina, murmured Dick in her ear. Sorry, Georgina, said Henry with a grin. I just can't help giving him a sandwich or two when he comes and sits down and looks at me so longingly. Ruff, said Timmy, and at once sat down in front of Henry, his tongue out and his eyes fixed unblinkingly on her. He sort of hypnotises me, complained Henry. Make him go away, George. I shan't be able to keep a single sandwich or a bit of cake for myself. Go and stare at someone else, Timmy, for goodness sake. Julian looked at his watch. I don't think we ought to spend too long over tea, he said. I know we've got summertime now and the evenings are nice and light, but we haven't reached the travellers' camp yet, and after that we've got to go all the way back. What about starting off again? Right, said everyone, and remounted their horses. They set off through the heather. Soon they found it unexpectedly easy to follow the caravan route, because the soil became sandy, and there were many bare patches on which the marks of the wheels could plainly be seen. Goodness, if we go to the east much more, we'll come to the sea, said Dick. No, it's still some miles away, said Julian. Hello, there's a little hill or something in the distance. First time we've seen anything but complete flatness. The wheel marks led steadily towards the little hill, which, as they came near, seemed to grow considerably bigger. I bet the caravans are there, said George. That hill would give a nice bit of shelter from the wind that came from the sea. I believe I can see one. George was right. The caravans were there. They showed up well against the hill in their bright colours. They've even got up a washing line as usual, said Anne. Clothes flapping in the wind. Let's go and ask if Clip is all right, said Julian. It will be a very good excuse for going right up to the camp. So they cantered straight up to the little group of five caravans. Four or five men appeared as soon as they heard the sound of hooves. They looked silent and rather forbidding. Sniffer ran out and shouted, Hello, Clip's fine, quite all right again. His father gave him a push and said something sharp to him. He disappeared under the nearest caravan. Julian rode up to Sniffer's father. Did I hear Sniffer say that Clip was quite all right, he asked. Where is he? Over there, said the man with a nod of his head. No need for you to see him. He's mended fine. All right, all right. 
I'm not going to take him away from you, said Julian. This is a nice sheltered place you've got, isn't it? How long are you staying? What's that to do with you? said an old traveller unpleasantly. Nothing, said Julian, surprised. Just a polite question, that's all. How do you get water? called George. Is there a good spring here? There was no reply at all. The four or five men had now been joined by others, and there were three mangy-looking dogs growling round. Timmy was beginning to growl back. You'd better go before our dogs get you, said Sniffer's father sourly. Where's Liz? said George, remembering Sniffer's dog. But before she got an answer, the three dogs suddenly made an attack on Timmy. They pounced on him, and he had hard work to keep them off. He was far bigger than they were, but they were nippy little things. Call off those dogs, yelled Julian, seeing that George was dismounting to go to Timmy's help. She would get bitten. Do you hear me? Call off those dogs. Sniffer's father whistled. The three dogs reluctantly left Timmy and went over to the men, their tails down. George had reached Tim and had now got her hand on his collar to stop him from chasing the other three dogs. Mount your horse, whistle Timmy and we'll go, shouted Julian, not at all liking the silent, sour-looking travellers. George did as she was told. Timmy ran beside her and they all cantered away from the unpleasant camp. The men stood watching them in complete silence. What's up with them? asked Dick, puzzled. Anyone would think they were planning another Bartle affair. Don't, said Anne. They're planning something, all alone out here, far away from anywhere. I shan't go near them again. They thought we were prying and spying, said Dick. That's all. Poor old Sniffer. What a life he has. We couldn't even tell him that we found his patrons useful, said George. Oh, well, there's probably nothing in it, not even an adventure. Was she right or wrong? Julian looked at Dick and Dick looked back, his eyebrows raised. They didn't know. Oh, well, time would tell. Chapter 11. A Nice Little Plan The five of them told Captain and Mrs Johnson about their afternoon's experience as they were having supper. Patrons, said Mrs Johnson. So, Sniffer told you about those. But I really don't think you should visit the travellers' camp. Those particular travellers are a surly, bad-tempered lot. Did you ever hear the tale of the Big Bartles? said Henry, getting ready to relate it and add little bits of her own here and there. No, but it can wait, I'm sure, said Mrs Johnson, knowing Henry's habit of leaving her food quite uneaten once she began on some marvellous tale. Is it one of your tales? You can tell it after supper. It's not Henry's tale, said George, annoyed that Henry should get all the limelight again and take the blacksmith's tale for her own. It's one old Ben told us. Jew, you tell it. Nobody is to tell it now, said Captain Johnson. You came in late for supper. We waited for you, and the least you can do is get on with your eating. The five juniors at the other table were disappointed. They had hoped to hear another of Henry's marvellous stories, 
but Captain Johnson was hungry and tired. Old Ben is a great age, as you said, began Henry, after a few mouthfuls. He... Not another word, please, Henrietta, said the captain curtly. Henry went red, and George grinned, kicking at Dick under the table. Unfortunately, she kicked Henry instead, and the girl glared at her for a whole minute. Oh, dear, thought Anne, just as we'd had such a lovely day. I suppose we're all tired and scratchy. Why did you kick me? began Henry in a cross voice, as soon as she and George left the table with the others. Shut up, you two, said Julian. She probably meant to kick me or Dick, not you. Henry shut up. She didn't like Julian to tick her off. George looked mutinous and went off with Timmy. Dick yawned. What jobs are there to do, if any, he said. Don't say there's washing up again. I feel I might break a few things. Mrs Johnson heard him and laughed. No, there's no washing up. The woman has come in to do it tonight. Have a look at the horses and see that Jenny the mare is not with Flash. You know she doesn't like her for some reason and will kick out at her. She must always be kept in another field. That's all right, Mrs Johnson, said William suddenly appearing, stolid and competent as ever. I've seen to that. I've seen to everything, really. <laughs> You're better than any stable boy, William, said Mrs Johnson, smiling at him. I wish you'd take a permanent job here. I wish you meant that, said William earnestly. There was nothing he would have liked better. He went off looking pleased. I think you'd better all go to bed then. As William seems to have done everything necessary, said Mrs. Johnson. Any plans for tomorrow? Not yet, said Julian, trying to stop a yawn. So if you want anything done, we'll do it. We'll see what tomorrow brings, said Mrs. Johnson, and said good night. The boys said good night to the three girls and went off to the stable. Gosh, we've forgotten to undress and wash and everything, said Julian, half asleep. What's the matter with us at this place? I can't seem to keep my eyes open after half past eight. End of disc two.